with the first jewel claim. Oh, it's a photo of the Derby! Mystics in! The race for the Triple Crown erupts into an epic party. The Preakness Stakes, May 18th on NBC and Peacock. There's no place like the movie theater. The smell of fresh popcorn welcomes you to a full body experience while candies and sodas compete for your attention. Hoping to join you in the best seats you've reserved on Fandango. It's where movie lovers buy tickets, pick seats, and double up on rewards points all online. All that's left is to walk in, snack up, and sit back. Visit Fandango.com or download the app today for your ticket to the movies. I'm ready to go. Streaming now only on Peacock. Five rich and famous international soccer stars. They have everything except love. I think girls in the past have gone for me because of what I've got. That's why we're going undercover. We're setting them up with single American women. They don't know we are famous. They don't know we are rich. And they'll have to hide their true identity. What do you need for work? I'm an ad salesman. (laughs) Oh, God. What am I doing? Love Undercover. New series streaming now only on Peacock. I was actually, uh, I was in Florida when the deal was was finally completed. Uh, it's, it's a lot easier to do cartwheels on the sand, I'll say that. Um, <laughs> Rich is having a hell of a visual over there right now. That's Mike McCarthy, his first press conference in a long time, talking about doing cartwheels in the sand. Peter King, Mike Florio, PFT Live. Peter, have you done cartwheels in the sand or anywhere? I never have and never will. I don't want to try it. I know I'll fall down. Mike, I've done I've done no cartwheels in my life. I am barely ambulatory. And uh, so when Mike McCarthy said that, and I heard that yesterday, I said, I'll tell you one thing. If he actually could do a cartwheel, what's more likely? Cowboys winning 14 games this year or Mike McCarthy doing a cartwheel? I'd say the Cowboys winning 25 games is more likely than Mike McCarthy doing a cartwheel, <laughs> frankly. And 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 all due respect, I think if Mike McCarthy would do a cartwheel in the sand, the sand would win and he would disappear. But uh, that's that's just my immediate reaction. All right. It's Friday. We're just 11 days into free agency. There are still plenty of free agents out there and there's still plenty of NFL news. And Peter and I will guide you through everything that's happening in the NFL over the course of the next two hours. We may take a look back at the week that was because the week is now over. But before we can end the week, we have to get through what you need to know. And let's begin with McCarthy. And it it really is amazing to me how there was that big buildup for McCarthy's return. And there was a lot of anticipation, Peter, And we all expected the Cowboys to be pretty damn good. I picked them to be the number one seed in the NFC. Did McCarthy get a pass for last year just because of the Dak Prescott injury? Is it that simple of an explanation? Yes. But I also think that one of the things that the Cowboys misjudged, uh, you know, led by Mike McCarthy, is how much of a change that defense was going to be under Mike Nolan. He admitted it yesterday, McCarthy did, that you know there was way too much new stuff on defense. And you know, last year I did something for my column, like I don't know, five or six times during the year. I watched in one of the Zoom squares as a position group of some team in the NFL was able to teach that day's process, you know? And and so what was very interesting about it is that you could just see a lot of the players, you know, in the Zoom squares. I mean, it's one thing to be teaching somebody. It's like remote learning right now in the United States and how difficult it is. It looked really difficult to get a lot of the concepts when A, you're not in the same room with somebody and B, you don't get to go out on the field and practice that after you learn it on Zoom. So for the Dallas Cowboys to install an entirely new defense, totally new concepts with Mike Nolan last year, 
and not get on the field till about August 2nd, you know, five weeks before you're going to start playing football or whatever day it was that they started training camp. Might have even been later than that. You know, like last year, I'll never forget. I was in Tampa at Tom Brady's first time that he huddled with his new offense, August 13th. And so to to institute and to put in a brand new defense the way Dallas did, they just didn't have time for it. And it showed early every week they're giving up 45 points. Yeah, it was the middle of August because there was an extended break-in period negotiated as part of the deal between the league and the union that allowed things to restart amid the pandemic because guys hadn't done anything. They wanted to slowly get them acclimated before they got on the field. So you're right. It was the middle of August for most teams before they actually got on the field. You mentioned the defense. I want to listen to some of what McCarthy said about the defense. I have some thoughts about the failures from last year and why maybe we didn't expect them after we hear what he has to say. Here he is from yesterday. The, the focus of change would, would definitely be on the defense. So, obviously, with the change in you know in the coordinator and the coaches, um, you know we, we feel uh, the direction that where I see the team needs to get goes is, is going to come under leadership of Dan Quinn. You know I've, I've known Dan for quite some time, and you know having a chance to to be in position to hire him uh, is definitely a, you know an, an asset, huge asset to our to our football operations. So, and. You know, schematically, uh, to the to the naked eye, or layman's you know terms, I mean, I don't think we'll see a, a whole lot because uh, I, I think it's important to to build off of what we did accomplish there. The, probably the second eight weeks, you know, our ability to take the ball away, and there was probably some you know conceptual uh, things that I felt like our, our players really really understood and, and played fast with, which wasn't evident in the first eight weeks. So. You know, we're not throwing, this isn't a start over situation. We're able to build off of uh, some of the things we accomplished last year. So that's that's definitely was part of my thinking. And uh, you have the opportunity to hire Dan. And uh, I really like the way the staff has come together. Uh, you know, it's uh, the energy and enthusiasm. I think the diversity of some of the assistance. So it's an, it's an opportunity for improvement. And I, th- I think we're definitely on the right path there. Beyond the changes in coaches, they've added some players, safety, Keanu Neal, and DeMonte Kazi on the team now. But, Peter, I'm conflicted on this. Miles Simmons and I talked about this on PFTPM last night. On one hand, I want to give the Cowboys credit for recognizing that it wasn't working under Mike Nolan and making the change. On the other hand, I want to indict the Cowboys for hiring Mike Nolan in the first place, for not recognizing the depths of the changes that would be necessary when you bring in a new system and your personnel maybe doesn't match it, and why aren't you working harder to get people like us to understand it so we can help spread the message of reducing expectations? Because once we got into September and we saw how bad the defense is, we were all kind of caught flat-footed, and we all, I think, had... The same realization at about the same time, well, what did we expect with Mike Nolan coming in with completely new defense? Like the Cowboys did nothing to get people to understand this wasn't going to be the 85 Bears right out of the gates. Not that anyone expected that, but we didn't expect him to be that bad. And I think that that points to failure in a lot of different ways by the Cowboys, that it was so bad and that it caught us by such a surprise and now here they are bottoming out after a year and changing coordinators. And McCarthy's only been there for one season. Mike, I think the biggest thing is that obviously, you know, Mike Nolan was hired and all of these plans were made when everyone from Jerry Jones on down thought that they had a full off season to institute them. And so, you know, there's probably no single unit in the NFL last year that suffered more because of the effects of the coronavirus on the United States than the Dallas defense. And I think when you sort of go back and do an autopsy on the Dallas season, I think right away, what what I have thought right away is that The Cowboys should have recognized how revolutionarily different this defense was going to be for them. And they should have said, well, look, 
we don't have time this year. Hopefully next year, we'll be able to get everybody on the field and we'll continue the installation of this defense. But honestly, they just tried to do too much in one off season that wasn't an off season. It was an off season. And that's where I think the problem lies. Great point. Why does Mike Nolan pay for it with his job then? If there's a perfectly good explanation for why it went so sideways last year, why is Nolan out? Why aren't they building on what they did? We heard that sense from McCarthy that they're not completely revolutionizing the defense now. It's not a full rebuild. They're building on some of the things that went well last year. That's where I'm confused because what you said makes sense. But then I can't reconcile that with firing Nolan after one season. Mike, it, it had to be, it had to be that they lost faith in Mike Nolan. Perhaps not just the installer and teacher, but in Mike Nolan, the coach, and his ability to reach the players. If he had had this tremendous, uh, you know, simpatico with these guys as they're going through this horrible time, and then as they rally later in the year to be better, as they simplified it a little bit, it would be one thing and they would say, okay, Mike, uh, you're coming back this offseason and we're going to continue to get better, blah, blah, blah. But obviously, McCarthy, the, the administration saw things that they simply didn't like. And what those specific things are, I don't know. But I agree with you. If they're playing better later in the year, it's easy to stand up after the season and say, you know, we tried to do too much this year. And we're going to finish the job this coming off season, uh, but we're going to go forward with what we have. So there's got to be something else there. You had done some reporting on McCarthy's planning during his year off, his buyout year with the Packers, and it seemed very meticulous. And basically he set up a football laboratory in Wisconsin and he had things planned out ahead of time as to what he was going to do. Was Nolan his first pick heading into getting his next NFL opportunity, or was Nolan a guy that just kind of happened to be available in that game of musical chairs that gets done when coaches are trying to fill out staffs? That's a good question, Mike. Uh, Mike McCarthy did not, uh, I didn't really press him on it, but he didn't talk about his coaching staff plan. Uh, in fact, if you, if I had to guess leaving there, whatever it was now, 16 months ago, leaving his house when it was eight below zero in Green Bay one December afternoon, uh, I would have guessed that Jim Hazlitt was going to be his defensive coordinator, but uh, that wasn't the case. So I don't know how he ended up. I know that he's had a long relationship with Mike Nolan going back, obviously, to when uh, McCarthy was on Nolan's staff obviously, when they drafted Alex Smith in 2005. Um, but I don't know if he was his first choice or if there are other choices along the way. As to Dan Quinn, when you think about his experience and specifically the fact that he's never been a defensive coordinator for an offensive coach who would like to just hand the keys over. Quinn got the job in Atlanta inheriting a system that had been crafted by Pete Carroll, not nearly the same as a Bill Belichick, who was a defensive mastermind, and he was the guy. For Pete Carroll in Seattle, he's the mastermind, and these revolving door of coordinators who kept getting head coaching jobs from Gus Bradley then to Dan Quinn, and then there was thought Chris Richard would be the next one. That never really worked out, but, but Quinn wasn't that defensive guru with any one team and then he becomes a head coach and now he's really a coordinator for the first time where it looks like he's going to be the guy who's in charge of that side of the ball do we have confidence especially when we look at how the Falcons uh, have done they haven't been great defensively under him do we think that this is going to suddenly be a much better defense or should we have tempered expectations this year just like we should have had them last year. And Mike, I hate to uh, go back on exactly what happened last year, but I do think that some of this is going to be uh, dependent on what sort of offseason do they have, okay? And if the offseason is relatively normal, 
then what's going to happen if, if you if you've been around Dan Quinn for any length of time and you've got to be a person of a certain age to know what I'm about to say but he's the Norman Vincent Peel of NFL coaches he is the power of positive thinking and he is going to convince mediocre players whether they are or not that they are fantastic and we're going to have the best defense in the league for you know for two or three consecutive years you know, I would go into Atlanta during training camp and I'd sit with uh, Dan Quinn and it's so kind of ironic, the signings that they have because he believed fervently that Keanu Neal was going to be the biggest difference-making safety slash hybrid linebacker in the NFL. He thought basically he was going to be what we saw on many occasions, Jamal Adams to be over the last couple of years. And, uh, you know, Keanu Neal has never been quite that entire package uh, that Jamal Adams was. But what he's going to do is he is going to convince his players, every one of them, of how great they are and the great things that they can do. And, you know, he's the kind of guy who he believes that if he has seen Demarcus Lawrence you know, pull a great swim move on a great offensive tackle one time that they can train him and coach him to do it every time. So that is what the Cowboys are getting in Dan Quinn. And that confidence and optimism really permeates the entire NFL this time of year when everyone is zero and zero and no one has to play a game for roughly six months. Let's pivot to the Pittsburgh Steelers. Art Rooney II, the president of the team, did a conference call with fans recently, and there's a lot of confidence there as it relates to a 39-year-old quarterback named Ben Roethlisberger. Here's what Rooney had to say about him. We wanted Ben back, uh, and the key to it really was to be able to restructure his contract uh, in a way that allowed uh, us to keep Ben and and uh, and really be able to sign some other players, and uh, you know so Ben cooperated with that and, and was willing to make some changes in his contract, uh, and that allowed us to you know to keep him on the team for this year, which was always our goal. And uh, you know, uh, look, I, I thought Ben had a, a, a very good year last year for somebody that was coming off arm surgery and. And, uh, you know, I, I think uh, hopefully he'll have an even uh, better year this year, uh, you know, with another year under his belt in terms of recovering from that arm surgery. It was. I'm not quite sure how the Steelers got to the point where they are so confident that Ben Roethlisberger is going to be even better this year. He's 39. There were knee issues last year that they tried to downplay. He never showed up on the injury report with knee problems. There were persistent and rampant reports he had any problems and maybe it's just arthritic and he's not getting any treatment so there's no reason to disclose that he's got the knee issue but he he clearly isn't the guy he used to be and he's going to be a year older I just don't get this this and again this is the time of year for confidence that borders on delusion I just don't get it Peter I don't know whether they wanted to give the fans one last ride with Ben Roethlisberger because they didn't get it last year I don't know whether they just want to delay the point where the Band-Aid comes off and they have to find another quarterback, but I, I still believe when they get to November or December, one or both sides is going to regret the last ride of Ben Roethlisberger. I hate to say it. I agree with you on that, Mike, and I, I hate to see that because of the great career Roethlisberger has had, but, you know, look, it, if, if Ben Roethlisberger really rededicates himself and comes back to training camp in great shape, or better shape than he was in last December, uh, I'll change my thinking on this. But what bothered me down the stretch for the Pittsburgh Steelers is to see, look, first of all, he's a tree trunk of a quarterback anyway. But when you see what's going on in football today and how fast football has become, and you see Ben Roethlisberger's inability to get out of the way, uh, and and you know not exclusively, but because he's so heavy, or he was so heavy last year, and so that to me is part of this thing. You know, he could do he'd do much better if he was 20 pounds lighter, and he came to camp in pristine condition. 
And look, he's not one of these guys who's going to do the Tom Brady thing in the offseason or do the Drew Brees thing. Um, and, and I just think, like, really, and I said this at the time, at the end of the season, if I'm Art Rooney, if I'm Mike Tomlin, part of my conversation with Ben Roethlisberger at the end of the year is, you got to come to camp in better shape. And you got to come to camp lighter. You need to be able to have better escapability than you did at the end of last year. And, and look, hey, Mike, you know what nobody's talking about in Pittsburgh? His biggest security blanket, you can talk about, oh, Antonio Brown's gone, Le'Veon's gone. Hey, Marquise Pouncey has been as close to a quarterback as any center has been in the NFL uh, in the last decade. And, and now that's, that security blanket is gone. Who knows what that offensive line is going to look like? And we're just assuming that the last three quarters or last two-thirds of last year, the running game was horrible. And because the running game was horrible, oh, it's going to be fixed. The Steelers always have a great running game. Maybe it will be. But you're changing up an awful lot of that offense up front, including the guy who was Ben Roethlisberger's most trusted offensive teammate, Marquise Pouncey. And it creates conflict for the Steelers in the offseason, particularly in the draft. Are we drafting guys that will be developed into great players down the line, or are we trying to plug holes now for this all-in move to try to make Ben Roethlisberger like Jerome Bettis and walk off into the sunset with the Super Bowl championship? And frankly, Peter, I believe they decided to bring Ben back in part because they got enough distance from the season that they were able to go back and look at what went well, look at what didn't go well, and say, if we just do this, if we just do this, if we just do this, we can win the Super Bowl. And it got them to kind of get whipped up into a frenzy that they could pull this off. But they've got a lot of work, as you point out, that they have to do. Now, the defense is still very good. But who's the running back going to be? Who's the center going to be? Are they going to draft for guys who can be plugged right in and play now? Are they going to be looking for the best available talent that they can develop over the long haul, maybe into 2022, 23, and beyond? They really are giving off the vibe of a team that is win now, win now, win now. And I suspect their draft is going to reflect that, even if they may be passing on guys who could become better contributors over the long haul. Mike, the Steelers never have been one of those teams that says, Let's take a step back this year, maybe next year as well, and we're going to come back as a championship contender in 2023. They never have been that way. I don't think under the Roonies that they ever will be that way. And so that's why what happened doesn't surprise me at all. But it also tells you exactly what they think of Mason Rudolph and what they think in a very limited exposure, what they think of Dwayne Haskins. You know, they're totally unsure that these guys can be the long-term guys. And, Mike, they are in no position to draft any of the top five quarterbacks this year. So, you know, it's, it's to me, it's not remotely surprising they brought back Roethlisberger. It is in their DNA to think in March that if the following things go right, we have a chance to play in the Super Bowl this year. And that's what they think. Art Rooney stating the obvious yesterday when he said, we've got to be a lot better in running the ball. They were 32nd in the NFL. Now, there are different accounts and theories on whether or not Ben Roethlisberger was calling audibles too often or with RPO plays, choosing to pass when he should have maybe handed off. But Something Jerome Bettis told Ed Bouchette of The Athletic during the season that still resonates with me. It just has to be a full offensive commitment to the run. It has to start in training camp. It has to continue all year. It's a mentality for your offensive line. It's firing off the ball and knocking guys on their butts and opening holes. So it is a combination of offensive line, having the running back who can get it done, and the quarterback who buys in to the point where he won't change the plays to pass plays because it became just a litany of short pass, short pass, short pass, short pass for the Steelers last year. They've got to get back to the running game. That is their identity. Peter, I've said before this offseason, they need to find, not that it's easy to do, but there are 
impactful running backs available in the draft every year. They need a guy who can make a Franco Harris type of an impact back in 72 when he, as a rookie, he came in and, and he was the best running back, one of the best running backs in the NFL immediately. They need a guy that they can trust to come in and get it done right out of the gates as a rookie because it's not like they have anyone like that on the roster. Hey, look, they thought James Conner was going to be that guy, but he was always nicked up. And look, he had the ethos that they wanted. He had the physical brand of football that they wanted. But every year was there were two or three things that kept him from being at his best. Right away when he got drafted, it was his hamstring. Uh, but, But so I agree totally with you, Mike. I think they have drafted a bunch of guys who were meh running backs. They just, you know, they, they've, they've been, to me, much below average. They need a workhorse. They need to do what, uh, you know, what they need to find in the later rounds or in the middle rounds because I just, I wouldn't use a running, uh, a pick on a running back early. But they need to find a James Robinson or, a, uh, you know, a Kareem Hunt playing type, um, you know, third round or after in this draft. They've got too many needs to fill early, uh, in my opinion anyway, to to take a running back in the first or second round. You mentioned James Conner too. He became a free agent 11 days ago, officially nine days ago. This is the first time his name's been mentioned, as far as I know, in this discussion about what he failed to do in Pittsburgh. It's been crickets, and a lot of the running backs are doing short-term deals, one-year, two-year, but his name hasn't come up as even a guy who's on anyone's radar screen. So maybe he slinks back to the Steelers the way Juju Smith-Schuster did. Let me ask you that before we move on. How surprised were you that the dominoes fell in a way that brought Juju back to a place where he had made it clear his opinion was he wouldn't be back, and he was telling his teammates he wouldn't be back? He just, you know, 2021 uh, messed with Juju Smith-Schuster's plans. And... You know, what I found very telling about it, Mike, is that you look at Kenny Galladay, and maybe Kenny Galladay said to the Giants, the Giants probably said, okay, look, we, you know, we'd like to, uh, we'd like to do a lot less money, we, you know, blah, blah, blah. We're going to give you some security, but we're going to be at $13 million a year on average, or, or whatever it is. And so uh, Kenny Galladay easily, easily could have said to the Giants, hey, look, I'm going to go somewhere else and make one year 17 and then just go in, into free agency again next year. And that to me is exactly Juju Smith-Schuster, not the Jets, not anybody had it in their mind that he's a 15 million, 16 million dollar player over a number of years in a difficult salary cap era. Maybe two years ago when everybody was was you know high on life and and the cap's going up $10 million every year. Maybe two years ago, a Juju Smith-Schuster could have gotten four years, $65 million. But he's not getting that in this environment because I believe, and this is just, look, look at this, the, the one stat up there. Okay, 97 catches last year, wonderful. 8.6 a catch. Okay, nobody really views him the way they view Kenny Galladay. Kenny Galladay is viewed as a downfield threat. Juju Smith-Schuster now has become, at least in the eyes of many people around the league, sort of a Larry Fitzgerald possession receiver. And so maybe he's not that, and maybe he's physically gifted enough to be uh, you know, that deep downfield threat again. But you just haven't seen it in the Pittsburgh offense. They have chosen others to be that. You mentioned two years ago that he would have gotten that kind of money. And the other reason that's accurate, two years ago, we didn't know he wasn't capable of being a number one guy. And that's the reality. After Antonio Brown was traded, they tried to make him the number one guy. He doesn't have the downfield speed to draw double coverage and be the focal point of the passing attack. He is a number two. And as a number two, there's a limit on what he's ever going to make, pandemic or no pandemic, affecting the salary cap. The NFL will be getting this year what it has wanted for a long time, an expanded regular season. It's just a formality at this point for the owners next week to put the rubber stamp on the 17 games. Art Rooney in the conference call with fans 
had this to say about the looming expansion of the league's regular season schedule from 16 to 17. The 17-game schedule, I think, will work out well. Obviously, uh, th- this year will be the first year for it, so we'll we'll get a chance to see how it goes. But, you know, I think we'll reduce the preseason by one game, I think. And so uh, it will be a similar kind of schedule just in terms of the calendar. Uh, but we'll just turn one of the preseason games into a regular season game, which I think uh, I think all of us uh, would appreciate that. So I, I feel good about it. I hope it works, and uh, look forward to seeing how how it, how it does in uh, 2021. Been 20 total games for decades, Peter. Back before they went to 16 and 78, there were 14 regular season games and six preseason games. Now it'll be 17 and three, and I assume eventually it's going to be 18 and two because they're going to want to continue to increase the inventory. But it, it it is just a matter of the owners getting together next week via video conference, taking the vote, and it'll probably be 32 to nothing. Maybe a chance of 31 to one because Mike Brown always votes against everything. But even on this, I suspect he'll agree. You know, they're they're really on on the ownership side right now. There's really no downside because, quite honestly, right now today, the owners need the money, and the owners need to do better than they have done in the last 12 months at basically strengthening their financial bases. It's not, and it's not just the lower revenue teams like Cincinnati. It's also, you know, the one public team in Green Bay. You know, I'll be very, very interested this summer to see how Green Bay's bottom line was ravaged uh, because Green Bay is one of those places that that basically really relies on the local revenue and the stadium revenue and the game day revenue. Um, you know, their, their pro shop makes millions, you know, because people love the Packers. But be that as it may, I, I would just make one point about the 17 games and you know, Mike, I, I am not a really nattering negative nabob usually, okay? But I just don't want to hear these things from NFL owners about how we're making the game so so much safer for the players. You know, I, 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 just, I don't want to hear it because you don't add 6% more snaps to a player's life in a given year. And if they go to 18 It'll be 12% more snaps over a 16-game season. or That's approximate. But you don't add that and say, oh, yeah, we're, we're, we're so much safer than we used to be. So, you know, when we start hearing this stuff about how great the NFL is doing on health and safety, just remember that the NFL owners are the ones who voted for the, and, and again, look, the players very narrowly, 32 to 30 per team last March, voted for a system that would include that 17th game. Now, 30 players per team voted against it, but the majority rules. And so there are an average of 32 players in every locker room who wanted that 17th game. By the way, impressive Spiro T. Agnew poll by Peter King on a Friday morning. And when we get later into the show, we're going to have a draft of the best Week 17, not that it'll actually be week 17, or se- it's the 17th game we're going to get, the game extra 17, game that yeah. we're going to get. The game 17, not week 17, it's actually going to be week 18, but it's not going to happen then either. It's going to be throughout the season. Anyway, the 17th game, the best one based on the formula that Peter reported, we're going to draft that coming up, and maybe he'll have some quotes from Nelson Rockefeller or Walter Mondale when we do that. Before that, Joe Flacco in Philadelphia as a backup, unless he isn't. We'll hear what he had to say yesterday and react when PFT Live continues right after this. At the theater, more than the movies come to life, movie lovers march in and skip the line with digital tickets to the latest movies on the free Fandango app. Ready to grab some snacks. Pick me! And head to the best seats in the house for a night of romance, terror, and quality family screen time. Visit Fandango.com or download the app today for your ticket to the movies. 
The Premier League is built on hope. The hope of discovering a new star. It doesn't take long for Darwin Nunez to make an impression. The hope of rewriting history. of continuing a dynasty. Unstoppable week after week. This is the Premier League on NBC, USA and Peacock. For the world's greatest athletes. This is the showdown we've been waiting for. There is nothing like competing on the world's biggest stage. It's a world record again. Goal for the United States. Unbelievable. And when that stage is Paris, anything can happen. An Olympics unlike any other. What a performance! The Paris Olympics, Friday, July 26th on NBC and Peacock. All right, the NFC East favorite continues to be the Dallas Cowboys. Odds makers apparently influenced by the fact that Dak Prescott's injury derailed a team that would have won the division, although in recent years... The Cowboys on paper far better than what they are in the one-loss column. We'll see how the season goes. Peter, do you have any reaction to that with uh, the Cowboys as plus 100 favorites to win that division? I'll believe it when I see it. You know, you got to love gamblers. Um, (laughs) Because, and look, I, I say that in a very snide way because I'm not one. And... One of the reasons I'm not one is because of something that I saw with John Madden back in 1991 when I took a bus ride across the country with John Madden, uh, which is how he got from game to game. I took the bus from the Bay Area of San Francisco near his home to uh, the Dakota, the apartment building in New York that he lived for so long when he was a, a broadcaster. And so we stopped the first night for dinner in Elko, Nevada. And we were in Elko, Nevada, and went to a big boy restaurant. And in the back of the big boy restaurant was a big cardboard sign, uh, you know, notating, denoting that this is where you can gamble. And a woman sat there at a card table. And there was a guy there who was betting on the games that weekend. Uh, And that weekend, the Packers were playing Detroit. And the guy, guy said to John Madden, hey, John, who do you like? Packers Detroit this weekend. Madden goes, where are you from? He goes, oh, Kenosha, Wisconsin. He goes, oh, I love the Packers. Packers, they're going to kill them this weekend. We were going out to the bus later. Guy comes up to John Madden. He goes, hey, John, who do you like this weekend? He says, what what game? He goes, Packers and Lions. And he goes, where are you from? He goes, Ypsilanti, Michigan. He goes, oh, Lions will kill them. Love the Lions. So I said, John, how can you do that? You just told two different people a different story about who you thought was going to win. He goes, because I don't know who's going to win. I don't know who's going to win these games. For people to gamble on games and pick these games and everything, I don't know. And his whole point was this. If I don't know, how can you know? And so I always thought that was the greatest thing about gambling because John wants to make people feel good. And he won't be surprised if either Green Bay or Detroit wins on that particular weekend, that pre-Farve weekend. You know, so anyway, my whole point about gambling is I, I, I don't really understand how anybody could look at the NFC East other than total faith in Dak Prescott and think that Dallas is better right now, right now than Washington. But we'll see. Social media would have been very kind to John Madden if it were around in his day because he understands the importance of making everyone happy. I think that's part of his motivation as well. But ultimately, (laughs) he's right. And we don't know and no one knows, although there are plenty of gamblers who think they have a system and maybe a few of them out there do. In Philadelphia, the chances of winning the division are going the other way as we see a dramatic overhaul of the <laughs> franchise. I still can't recall a team that has fallen apart faster only three it's years after winning the Super Bowl than the Eagles. So Joe Flacco now on the depth chart with Jalen Hurts. And Flacco has a history of not embracing the role of mentor to a young quarterback. He said a couple of years ago after they drafted Drew Locke in Denver. Now, Locke arrived after Flacco had been traded from Baltimore. Flacco said at the time, it's not my job to mentor 
Drew Locke. This time around, he's stepping into the job in Philadelphia knowing that they have a young guy that they want to see become the guy, even with that. Flacco not sounding like a guy who's ready to take anyone under his wing. Here's Flacco from yesterday. Hey, Joe, there's been some questions about just how you view kind of uh, mentoring a young quarterback. Um, what What is uh, your take on that, uh, especially right now as it applies to applies to Hertz? And, and uh, you know, have you kind of evolved in that way over the course of your career? Right. Well, listen, I, I think I've spoken to it a little bit um, and just saying that, you know, I'm here to do what's best for our team and help us win football games. And the thing I've said so far is that, you know, I think competition, you know, in, in any room and, in, and on any team is something that brings out the best. And, you know, that's really what I'm here to do. Will you mentor Jalen Hurts and help him? Well, like I said, I, I think every every quarterback room, you know, guys help each other. Uh, that's what we're here for. That's what the whole team does. Um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna do my part, and we're gonna win a lot of football games. And part of that is getting in the QB room, grinding, and and helping each other out. Do you think you're gonna have a legitimate shot to compete for the starting job here? I'm not even really looking at it that at that way at this point. Um, you know, like I said, I really just want to come in, and you know, your your goal as a football player is always to show people you know, around you that you can play football. And I don't care what level of playing that is, whether you're the first string, second string, third string guy on the team, you still want to prove to everybody on the football team that you can play football and that you deserve a spot on this team in some capacity. And that's really what my job is. Peter, here's my theory on Joe Flacco, and I want to see if you agree with it, and I won't be upset at all if you don't. It's more fun sometimes. If you don't, there are two types of backup quarterbacks. Number one, the guy who knows he's the backup, accepts he's the backup, and is only ever going to play if the starter gets hurt. And he's there to help the starter get better. The other kind of backup is the most popular guy in town backup, the viable number two behind a number one who isn't all that great, and the number two is doing everything he can to get on the field. Flacco, to me, is a rarity. Flacco is a guy who was the guy. Super Bowl MVP, highest paid player in the NFL on two different occasions. You rarely see a true franchise quarterback hang around and collect paychecks as long as he can. They usually just say, I'm out. I'm not, I'm not reducing myself to that. Well, he is, and I appreciate his love of the game. But I don't think it's in him, after being the guy with the Ravens for all those years, to concede anything to anyone, even if he knows what his role is. He's not going to sit there and say it out loud, not after what he's done as a quarterback in the NFL. That's my interpretation of what he was saying yesterday. Look, Joe Flacco was signed by this team because he was the best option available for the Philadelphia Eagles. And I'll give you an asterisk to that. You know, Josh McCown would have been the best option available without any question, you know, if he were three or four years younger and if he were willing to not stay in Texas to watch his son Owen play high school football this year. So, you know, that that's really the biggest reason why this year the best option was Joe Flacco. Oh, and the other one is because... Ryan Fitzpatrick can can make $10 million being the nominal starter somewhere else. And so now you look at the field of available quarterbacks and you say, we can't give Andy Dalton what he wants, which is legitimate money and a starting job. Same thing with Ryan Fitzpatrick. And we can't turn back the hands of time and give Josh McCown what he wants. So... Right now, at this moment, this player is the best option we have. And I'm sure, I am sure that Joe Flacco knows which way the wind is blowing here, knows that he's not the starting quarterback of this team. And look, I know Joe. And Joe is not going to be a bad guy. He's not going to be a selfish guy. He's not. You know, he's going to be in the quarterback room and if, if Jalen Hurts says, hey, Joe, what do you think of here? Joe's going to open it up, and Joe's going to tell him what he thinks. 
but Joe probably isn't going to be the, hey, look, Jalen, just follow me and everything's going to be fine. So that's how I view this. Yeah, I agree with what you're saying. And it's just not his style to say to a guy, here's what you need to do. he, He just sets the example. He goes about his business and yeah. he understands he's the backup to Hertz, but I think he also understands that in Philadelphia they view the backup the backup as a very significant position on the team because they saw what happened in 2017 when they needed Nick Foles to come in for Carson Wentz. So there's an opportunity there for Flacco, and actually he's going to make more money than Hertz because Hertz is under a slotted second round rookie contract. Uh, Flacco is going to do all right in comparison, but as the market goes for veteran backups, it's it's not great money, but allows him to continue his career. Let's take a break. When we return, where do we stand on this concept of enhanced duties for the replay official and or the booth umpire, sky judge, whatever we want to call it? Peter had some reporting earlier this week. We'll try to make sense of where the league is headed when PFT Live continues right after. Right, the NFL, in my opinion, desperately needs to have a booth umpire, a member of the crew who just happens to be seeing what we see at home and who can talk to the referee at any time when there's a mistake, when they miss something, let them know about it. That's exactly what the Ravens have proposed for this year. Peter, where does that all stand? I think it's going to pass, Mike. And here's here's the... I think it's really important to know that, okay, so everybody, all the coaches have wanted this thing called a sky judge for a long time. And that is basically an eighth official with full officiating power up in the booth. And that official basically can throw flags on the field from his sky high perch, watching the game and then being able to watch it on TV as well uh, with very quick replays. But I think, the NFL and certainly the competition committee fears one thing about the sky judge. And that is that, you know how they say in the NFL, you can call a penalty on any play if you look hard enough. Well, they fear that he's this sky judge would look and find a bunch of plays that have nothing to do with the game or nothing to do with that specific play. So the, 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 the increased powers given to the replay official are going to be for things like, did he step out of bounds? Did he not step out of bounds? Did he catch that ball or did he trap it? And before the next play happens for that official to buzz down and to say to uh, the crew chief, the umpire, hey, listen, you guys missed one. You need to change this call. Will it work? I think there's a lot of unintended consequences with it, but it bridges the gap between the a full-time sky judge and a, and a sky judge who can throw flags on the field and a less intrusive guy like I think they're going to try to create. That's essentially what they were going to experiment with in the preseason last year. There just wasn't a preseason to experiment with it. I'm a, I, I, I think they should go the full way to what the Ravens have proposed, which is a member of the crew who does see what we see. Because that's the biggest problem right now with officiating. Peter, you've got seven individuals, middle-aged and older in some cases, who are out there with no protection, trying to survive amid the gladiators, trying to see and process with the naked eye things that are moving so quickly. And how many times do we watch a game? And there's an official looking right at the guy as he's trying to make the catch. And he gets the two feet down as he makes the catch. And the official does the incomplete pass signal. You you need to have someone who's removed from the fray, who sees what we see and bridges that gap between what we see and what we expect at home versus what they are trying to discern amid the chaos of being on the field. So I, I, I understand their trepidation, but one of the arguments the Ravens made that I think is very persuasive, sooner or later, you're going to have Sky Judge. You're going to have Booth Umpire. You're going to have an additional member of the crew. You may as well just embrace it now before something happens that forces you to say, oh, my God, we have to have an eighth member of the crew who's actually in the booth because the Ravens' opinion is eventually it will happen. Mike, there's one other thing about this, okay? 
that I think cannot be discounted. You know, one of the things that the competition committee and the league office loved about last season, the decline in accepted penalties and the decline in called penalties. They love the game that doesn't have flags flying all the time. Even when you can look at some plays and say, oh my God, I can't believe they didn't call holding. That's a hold. But the NFL wants fewer flags on the field. A sky judge is going to create more flags on the field. So at this point, and you're right, you're absolutely right. There's going to be an Armageddon call in a championship game that has been blown. And and so then they're going to say, okay, now we got to get the sky judge. That's probably going to happen one of these years. I don't see it as inevitable, though. Well, if they would have had a sky judge, the pass interference non-call in the NFC Championship game from the 2018 season would have been overturned, and a flag would have been dropped if the person had that authority. Peter, in my mind, it's no different than an official on the field. We see caucuses all the time where – there's a group of officials that get together and they talk about it. That's because one of the officials saw something that maybe the other official didn't. This booth umpire would just be the official who's in position to see what we see. What but, we see, because none of those seven on the field see what we see. I think it's so important in an age of ultra HD where we all see it and we all know. And the only people in the world who don't know are the seven officials on the field. You need that gap to be bridged. Well, theoretically, you're going to be able to bridge that gap now because you're going to have the replay official being able to call down to the referee and said, man, you guys missed that one. But not interference. Not interference. Not completely. But not on interference. Not on interference. You're right about that. And it's very interesting. You know, what would the would the competition committee and would Roger Goodell in the league consider allowing the uh, replay official to eventually have that power. I think that will be a very interesting debate if it does happen. I, I don't think it'll it'll be debated on this coming week, but I do think that it will come to that. What will push the change eventually will be the proliferation of legalized gambling, Peter, because when that next big mess up happens, that's when you will have millions of dollars that change hands that were legally wagered and that will create an outcry for change. We're going to take a break. More PFT Live. 